All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this honor even of gathering together in your son's good name as family in the unity that you've provided to each of us as well as corporately. Father, what a privilege this is. Father, also we are so very grateful for all that you do for us in our lives. You've given us the completed canon of Scripture so that we can enjoy mornings like this, dining on the very bread of life, being delivered, sanctified to your glory. Father, we're so thankful for your patience and your mercy and your loving kindness throughout all of this. We pray, Father, for those that are ill in our congregation, that they be healed, your will be done in your perfect timing, of course. But we do desire to see their faces again and enjoy their company and be encouraged by their fellowship. Father, we pray also for those that are still lost in this world, wandering around without any real hope whatsoever. We are most grateful and thankful for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt, and to make a morning like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, we're picking up where we left off about a week and a half ago or so. Uh, first, thanks to Scott for delivering a wonderfully placed series titled, why is our hope so certain? Here are a few things that stuck out to me uh, during that series, especially as the Spirit gave us his closing thoughts. Um, and Scott repeated this other theme time and again, that this mini-series that we just received was a form of, of encouragement that is complementary to our current course of study, which is, of course, the peaceful fruit of righteousness, and I was thinking about that, and you should as well, always remember that God's timing is always perfect. Why is our hope so certain? Why is that sort of injected in the middle of the peaceful fruit of righteousness? Well, God's timing is perfect, uh, and that includes even those times when your pastor is on vacation. So none of it is per chance. Uh, I, my vacation was long overdue. And it turns out that if you think of God's design and God's plan for all of you, I had to wait. I had to go longer so that the series you just received was perfectly placed in time. If you're paying attention to what's coming from the pulpit, you quickly, quickly realize that it's our great shepherd's spirit working his curriculum to God's glory. And remember that Scott and I are merely vessels, though we do have different spiritual gifts. We're nothing more than vessels. If we do our job properly, we're just really, what, glorified waiters? The first point of review, though, nonetheless... On that mini-series, why is our hope so certain? 
was this. Do we carry a certain definite unwavering hope within us on a regular basis? Do we carry a certain definite unwavering hope within us on a regular basis? The Lord wants us to continue to seek Him so that our personal confidence in His salvation is ever on the increase within us. In the launching pad for this morning's message are two words, His salvation. Again, the Lord wants us to continue to seek Him so that our personal confidence in His salvation is ever on the increase within us. You might say, why all the emphasis on His? Because there are other forms of salvation, be it they are counterfeit, but they are still manifest in this world. Just look at this world. Everyone's either trying to be a savior or looking for someone to save them. But it's hardly, sadly, ever Jesus Christ, the one true capital S savior. So I want to sort of launch this lesson on those two words, his salvation, having confidence, personal confidence in his salvation. And that's because this is the only perspective we can have on this topic. And just as a side note, I think this is why so many, quote, Christians lack peace. Firstly, they may not even possess his salvation, nor are they even interested in it. This simple recurring theme is something the Spirit's been pressing upon us for years now. Secondly, without a divine perspective on salvation, namely His salvation, we inevitably suffer a lack of peace. To whatever degree said perspective is skewed. And lastly, without confidence in such things, there is no hope. Without confidence, there is no hope. Again, the point here is that the only perspective we can have that delivers us unto His peace is to fully apprehend His salvation. That's why, honestly, everything at this juncture in my spiritual walk comes back to the Gospel every single time. If I'm having a bad day, I just go back to the Gospel. If I'm having a good day, I go to the Gospel. If I'm having a sideways day, anyone ever have one of those? Kind of confused. Like, I go to the Gospel. We're going to talk about mixed emotions this morning. If you just keep the gospel as the centerpiece and Jesus Christ as the centerpiece of your life, you have peace. And that's what he's saying. It's about his salvation. He says, my peace I give to you. But he's not going to, you don't receive that unless you have confidence in his salvation. Uh, and so that's a very active thing. Up here on the board, again, why is our hope so certain? Do we carry a certain definite unwavering hope within us on a regular basis? The Lord wants us to continue to seek Him so that our personal confidence in His salvation is ever on the increase within us. Allow me to repeat myself here, up here on the board. Sanctification, in a nutshell, the only perspective we can have that delivers us unto His peace is to fully apprehend His salvation. And this is not something that is fully apprehended when we're saved properly. It's not like, oh, I got saved yesterday. 
That's it. I, there's no further appreciation or deliverance or peace that I can find because now I'm saved. Now, I don't know about you, but every day that I live in what I like to call the gospel reality, I have a greater appreciation for all that He's done for me. When I open up the Bible and, I, and connective tissue starts to form in my soul, I have a greater appreciation for all that He's done for me. When I see Him deliver any one of you, I have a greater appreciation. When I see the Word working in your lives, I have a greater appreciation. When I see your gratitude for being saved, I have a greater appreciation. Isaiah 26.3, John 16.33, 1 Thessalonians 5.16-24, 2 Thessalonians 3.16. Let's look at some scripture on this point on the board. The only perspective we can have that delivers us unto His peace is to fully apprehend His salvation. Go to Isaiah 26, verse 3. Isaiah 26, verse 3. That's what this is all about. Before I left, we talked an awful lot about the transcendent nature, if you would, of peace. The fact that it's a really big word, um, a big concept, something that uh, is overarching, something that comes in abundance, uh, is evident in absolute abundance when we think about the essence of God. Isaiah 26.3 the steadfast of mind, you will keep in perfect peace. The steadfast of mind, you will keep in perfect peace because He trusts in you. Uh, the greatest thing we can ever trust in is our salvation, right? What else is there if there's no salvation? Everything goes back to salvation. The steadfast of mind, you will keep in perfect peace because He trusts in you. How about John 16.33? John 16, verse 33. John 16.33. I mean, how many people, just don't go back there, but how many people when they were saved, you, all of you, New Isaiah 26.3, the steadfast of mind, you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. You didn't know that. You were just an infant. You know, <laughs> Jesus saved me. Give me some milk. I need to grow up now. You didn't know these things. This is why we read the Bible. And this is how we get a greater and greater peace in our lives ushered in. John 16.33 these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. In me you have peace. You may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. Courage. I have overcome the world. Again, the point on the board. Sanctification in a nutshell. That's what we're talking about. When you're sanctified, you're ushered towards peace. That's how you know you're being sanctified. If you have more peace and stability in your life, you know that He's sanctifying you. The only perspective we can have that delivers us unto His peace is to fully apprehend 
his salvation. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5.16. This passage never gets old, ever. And every time I read it, it means more to me. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. If we don't do that in this church, I don't know what we do. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every, not some, not when you feel like it. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. That's the substance of our hope, our confidence in his salvation. And when this passage means more and more to you, you have more peace in your life. Go to 2 Thessalonians 3.16. And this is why Paul often closed this way. 2 Thessalonians 3.16. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. Amen. Amen. Again, the point on the board, the only perspective we can have that delivers us unto his peace is to fully apprehend his salvation. Just a little more review from our mini-series, speaking of sanctification, up here on the board. Why is our hope so certain? Our Lord always did and always does what is right. He lived in perfect righteousness. His perfect obedience made him the perfect son and the perfect sacrifice. We have a perfect high priest, as we studied. We have the perfect sacrifice. The Bible describes him as uh, blameless, spotless, the Lamb of God. We looked at Hebrews 10, 10 to 14, and 12, 11. I was thinking about that. Um, what might we conclude about the lifestyle choices that Jesus, our Messiah, made? What might we conclude about the lifestyle choices? Now, consider that he had perfect peace, always. What might we conclude about his lifestyle? The choices he made. Christ has perfect peace. What does that mean for you? All I can say is that we're to examine carefully our own lives for starters. And, and if we're lacking some form of peace, think about how Jesus lived his life. I mean, he is our perfect prototype after all. If we desire peace, I mean, who here wants to raise a hand and say they don't want peace? 
unless there's something wrong with you? I mean, if we desire peace as we say we do, then where are we to find it? That seems to be the nagging question. Oh, I want peace. I know you want peace. Well, where do we find it? Let me give you a a little analogy. A little girl says to a little boy, I have some bubble gum that is the best ever. What do you think the little boy's first response is going to be? Most likely it'll be to the tune of, well, show me where it is. I want some. How much more do we children of God desire Christ's peace? And as the analogy went, what's the first question we should all be asking? Where can I find it? Makes sense to me. Well, what do you think the Spirit's been saying to us? Some of you have been praying for peace for years. More peace. Give me more peace. Give me more faith, like the apostles would say. Increase our faith. Well, the, the question is then, where can you find it? And the Spirit, in His perfect timing, as a response to your prayer, is answering it, like real time, right now, from this pulpit, and has been for months. I'd be willing to bet that everybody in here has prayed for peace at some point in their life. And God only knows what that means for you right now in your life. But here's the connective tissue that I think people miss. This is Him answering you. Does that make sense? This is Him answering you. God uses instruments to deliver you. He uses instruments like this one, like this pulpit, like this church to answer your prayers. It's the funkiest thing. I received a letter, a long one, double-sided, typed from someone who apparently didn't like one of my blogs. The one that had something to do with... uh, being grateful for discipline. And the interesting thing about it was they were, uh, how would you say, missing the point. The problem this person had, of course it was a female, no offense ladies, was that they didn't want to give anyone but God the ability to discipline them. That was the message that I received. In other words, I'll take authority from God, but not you. God uses instruments, spiritually endowed gifts, to do the work of discipline. How else are you going to be disciplined? Most of you go, la, 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 la. You read the Word of God, you go, I don't like that chapter. I'm never reading that book again. I only like the one on the love and compassion of God. I don't want to hear the other ones. So God has to send a moron like me into your life. A nobody. But I'm humble. People don't understand it. God uses instruments to deliver you. 
This is the instrument. Some of you have been praying for peace your whole lives. He's trying to give it to you. He's actually answering your prayers. And some of you are going, la, 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 la. I don't know who, but he's obviously inspired me to say such things as an instrument for your deliverance. Do you know what I'm getting at? It's the oddest thing. It's the oddest thing. People, they understand the concepts, but they reject the instruments that God uses. It's the oddest thing. So that's what the Spirit's been trying to say to us. He's saying, I understand the innate desire of the new creature in you to enjoy Christ's peace. So here's the roadmap. It's called the Word of God. I've even given you a tour guide, the bald guy. I've even given you a tour guide to help you find said peace. I'm going to use him in this ministry as an instrument of righteousness to guide you in Holy Scripture. So you can have that thing that you keep begging me for in prayer. So, back to the point. We are expounding upon two words here. His salvation and the gravity of what those two words really mean his salvation and furthermore how fundamental they are to our own hope and peace for example go to acts 4:12 acts 4 verse 12 <clears throat> acts 4 Verse 12. Yeah, it's a very funny thing. People are, are real funny when it comes to um, the instruments that God uses. Do you ever say to yourself, um, okay, on, on a, on a, you know, nobody likes to talk about discipline. So that usually causes a stumbling block and sometimes the spirit can't get through to your skulls, right? How about love? How about grace? Has someone recently given you something and you turn around and you say, thanks God, God loves me. Um, was there not an instrument that God used to show his love for you? Was it not another person who was following, say, Romans 6, being an instrument of righteousness? Wasn't it actually another human being that God used? I mean, God didn't come down and hand you a bag of trail mix, did he? He didn't come down and hand you a, a, a gift certificate to uh, Dunkin' Donuts, did he? But it's the funniest thing. People will say, thanks, God. God loves me. He showed me grace today. Yeah, through an instrument. Okay, I agree with that. Okay, now on the flip side. God disciplined you. You have no right. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. No, no, no. You don't get to pick and choose. God says he'll use instruments in your life to deliver you. One way or the other. He'll encourage you this way. He might have to discipline you at times this way. But you don't get to pick and choose all of a sudden. Do you follow what the Spirit's saying? And then to, just to put a capstone on that before we get to the Scripture, 
that instrument, you ready, might be you. Instead of being so self-absorbed and saying, what has God done for me lately? How about the fact when you grow up, you start to realize that you're the instrument. That the great privilege in your life is to be used by God to His glory. It's incredible to be used in any way possible. Anyways, you at Acts 4.12 yet? I know some of you are slow. <laughs> Acts 4.12 And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Again, the following two overarching principles. Why is our hope so certain? I mean, look at Acts 4.12. For starters... Do we carry a certain definite unwavering hope within us on a regular basis? The Lord wants us to continue to seek Him so that our personal confidence in His salvation is ever on the increase within us. And then secondly, our Lord always did and always does what is right. He lived in perfect righteousness. His perfect obedience made Him the perfect Son and the perfect sacrifice. So in other words, He's the substance of our hope. And then the very substance became our prototype, became a man. And he lived a life, did he not? For 33 years. He lived a life, and some of it is recorded. And we know enough that he has enough about him that he had and has perfect peace. And his lifestyle was lockstep with all of it. That's the point. So that got me thinking some more, and hopefully you're already thinking yourselves. Lifestyle, peace, peace, lifestyle. Um, some things come in inseparable pairs. Some things come in inseparable pairs. The greatest example we've studied over the past few years is with the with salvation itself, of course, and that it is both repentance and faith that leads us to salvation, that ushers us to salvation, two sides of the same coin, so to speak, that one without the other produces some kind of counterfeit Christianity. Another example might be with knowledge and wisdom, where it's impossible to have one without the other. Knowledge and wisdom, they're inseparable. You can't have wisdom without knowledge. Or maybe we ponder forgiveness and love. Those are inseparable. Or love and compassion. Those are inseparable. The point is up here on the board... Some things cannot be possessed by themselves, lest they be counterfeits. And we run into an awful lot of that in the churches. People say, oh, I'll, I'll have this part of the coin, but I don't want the backside. Or I proclaim that I have this side, but not that one. 
but that makes things that are intrinsically paired from God's viewpoint now counterfeits. I think this is the gist of what the Spirit's been trying to work out in our souls. And I ask that each of you spend some real time. Real time. And this is not the real time. When I say that, I'm not talking about church and then the eggplant parmesan or whatever, quiche or whatever's back there in your fellowship. I'm talking about real time. Real time. After this, time spent decompressing what the Spirit is inserting into your soul. Church is not... Remember the mash analogy? This is, this is where you get healed and equipped to go out again. A soldier doesn't go to boot camp and then never wear his uniform or pick up a rifle ever again. Until he goes back to training, I don't know, a year later. Puts on his uniform again and says, Hoorah! Or in the Navy, Hoo-yah! Is that correct? Hoo-yah! The fight's out there. The real-time thinking is out there. So I ask each of you to spend some real time thinking about the point on the board. For some of you, it may be that you claim a life in Christ, but your lifestyle proves to yourself something entirely different. For others, you may be clinging to a counterfeit peace that was granted to you from the kingdom of darkness. I have peace now. The world has left me alone. Oh, oh, oh. let me tell you something about that little charade. If the world has stopped antagonizing you, you've probably befriended it. If the world has stopped antagonizing you, you're no longer a threat. Do you get my drift? That's not peace. That's counterfeit peace. That's the kingdom of darkness in essence saying, we're going to leave you alone because though you're a Christian, you don't form any threat. So if you have peace with the world, I'm telling you, something's awry where it matters. That's a counterfeit peace given to you by the kingdom of darkness. And maybe for others, you may claim you're in love. But it's not with Christ. It's with someone or something of the world. Whatever the case may be, I ask that you examine yourselves deeply so that the Spirit can work out whatever's awry in your soul. Peace comes to us every, uh, when every divinely ordained pair is in place. Peace comes to us when every divinely ordained pair is in place. Possession of only one half of such a pair leads us away from peace. If you say you have love but no compassion, if you say you have forgiveness but no love, if you say you have faith but no repentance, these things do not bring peace in your life. They bring counterfeits. 
And as always, for the record, and I dedicate this to the person who wrote me that letter even, I speak all of this out of love for you. I want you to experience what I know to be true from the Word of God. Go to Hebrews 6.19. Hebrews 6.19. That's all I want for you people. Honestly. Hebrews 6.19 This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So much of that was explained this past week. We studied the unique order of the priesthood that Jesus is assigned to and concluded up here on the board that we have hope, both sure and steadfast. Hebrews 6, 19. Lastly, as we close out our review of our mini-series titled, Why is Our Hope So Certain? I'll say this. I loved how the Spirit closed out the series with a bunch of Holy Scripture. Scott is probably the only other person in here that understands what I'm about to say, but as oftentimes when you stand behind this pulpit, um, which I've seen well-spoken individuals literally shake behind, you often feel inadequate uh, to do God justice, to do a certain topic justice, and so you are so grateful when the Spirit says, don't worry about it. You don't have to preach. Just read Holy Scripture with them. And it's a reprieve. Because, as Scott rightly stated, nothing says it better than the Word of God. So we covered a lot of Scripture at the end of those lessons, and I'll give you the amplified classic translations now just for review, just for review, and I'm just going to read them with you up here on the board. Psalm 43.5 in the Amplified Classic. Why are you cast down, O my inner self? And why should you moan over me and be disquieted within me? Hope in God and wait expectantly for Him, for I shall yet praise Him, who is the help of my sad countenance and my God. Psalm 62.7, Amplified Classic. With God rests my salvation and my glory. He is my rock of unyielding strength and impenetrable hardness, and my refuge is in God. In verse 8. Trust in, lean on, rely on, and have confidence in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts before Him. God is a refuge for us a fortress and a high tower. Salah. Pause and calmly think of that. Again, we are closing out the series, Why Is Our Hope So Certain? Psalm 146, verse 8. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the uncompromisingly righteous. 
those upright in heart and in right standing with Him. How about New Testament? Romans 5.1, Amplified Classic. Therefore, since we are justified, acquitted, declared righteous, and given a right standing with God through faith, let us grasp the fact that we have the peace of reconciliation to hold, hold and to enjoy. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Verse 2. Through Him also we have our access, entrance, introduction, by faith into this grace, state of God's favor, in which we firmly and safely stand. And let us rejoice and exult in our hope of experiencing and enjoying the glory of God. Verse 3. Moreover, let us also be full of joy now. Let us exult and triumph in our troubles and rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that pressure and affliction and hardship produce patient and un unswerving endurance. Verse 4, And endurance, fortitude, develops maturity of character, approved faith, and tried integrity. And character of this sort produces the habit of joyful and confident hope of eternal salvation. Verse 5, Such hope never disappoints or deludes or shames us, for God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then verse 6, While we were yet in weakness, powerless to help ourselves, at the fitting time Christ died for in behalf of the ungodly. Again, these are the reasons why our hope is so certain. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, 58. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. How about Titus 1.1? Go there. Titus 1, verse 1. Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. And since we looked at 1 Peter 3.15 live last time up here on the board, I've got it in the Amplified Classic. But in your hearts set Christ apart as holy and acknowledge Him as Lord. Always be ready to give a logical defense to anyone who asks you to account for the hope that is in you. But do it courteously and respectfully. And verse 16, And see to it that your conscience is entirely clear, unimpaired, so that 
when you are falsely accused as evildoers, those who threaten you abusively and revile your right behavior in Christ may come to be ashamed of slandering your good lives. At the close of our mini-series, Why is our hope so certain? The Spirit gave us one final thought up here on the board. Jesus is our anchor. So remember, this is His salvation, not our own. This is His salvation, not our own. Go to, let's see, no, I'm going to skip that. With that said, we need to get a little connective tissue back to where we left off a couple of weeks ago with what is now part seven of the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And remember, the key to our lessons has been that the concept of peace in the Bible is a very large one. Peace is a very large concept. Peaceful fruit, peaceful, and adjectives are a big adjective. So peace isn't something to wave a hand at. It's all-encompassing. Let me give you a visual that might help. Imagine your emotions are calculated as the weight of a cup with your name on it. So your emotions are the weight of the cup with your name on it. God says, let me fill this cup with knowledge of me. That is grace and truth as my son, Jesus, manifested. Well, in a perfect world, our cup would always be full, and therefore the weight of our emotions would be at an all-time high. Pretty awesome, right? The only hitch is that we have competition for filling this cup with our name on it. In fact... We tend to give the kingdom of darkness way more access to this cup than we do God. Think about it. How many hours in a week do you give God versus how many hours do you give the kingdom of darkness? It doesn't make any sense given our desire to have peace, right? God, please, God, grant me peace. Please, please, please grant me peace. Okay, you do that, I'm going back to the world. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. No, that's not how it works. I'm going to take my cup and I'm going to go to the world. I'm going to say, oh, shucks, stay away from my cup. Stay away from my cup. Okay, you can put one in. Stay away from my cup. Okay, I'll go to church. Okay, don't listen to that. Okay, God, you take care of my peace. I'm going to go back out to the world. Oh, you... Okay, you can put some... Flirting with the world, in other words. That's what most of us do. And then we wonder. And then we contemplate what the Spirit's actually doing through this instrument to our own benefit. And why it seems like it's very often almost disciplinary, the manner... Because he's shaking you. He's literally saying, what the hell are you doing? Going out to the world and flirting with the world. And pretending like it doesn't matter. 
and opening yourself up, leaving the lid off the cup, in other words, to the world and expecting the world to turn a blind eye and not put anything in it. And then, at the end of the day, expecting you to have stability. So we tend to give the kingdom of darkness way more access to this cup than we do God. doesn't make sense if you look at the long-term objective. But that's true. So what we end up with is a cup filled with a mixture of truth and lies. A mixture of truth and lies, which turns out to produce what can only be called mixed emotions about life itself. I've heard people, some listening to my voice right now, say things like, life sucks and then you die. I don't recall Jesus ever saying that. Or, I can't wait until this life ends. And so this begs the question, why? Would a person say such things? And the answer is mixed emotions. Because they have a cup full of truth and lies, mixed. And so anything that emotes from possession of such things is mixed. And we call that mixed emotions. If you have mixed emotions about anything, Where's your peace? It's flown the coop. If you have mixed emotions, you don't have peace. Solid hope in Jesus leaves us with a single emotion. Peace. Solid hope in Jesus leaves us with a single emotion. And I'm not assigning any fault, for even Paul expressed such sentiments. Go to 2 Corinthians 5 6. 2 Corinthians 5 6. I'm really not judging anyone, so don't do that disservice to yourself. This is about the Spirit using an instrument to deliver you, to wake you up, to shake you, to say, Stop flirting with the world. Stop flirting with the world. 2 Corinthians 5, 6, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. And so it's not uncommon to say, you know, hey, I'm kind of looking forward to getting out of here. But if you do that in the absence of understanding that you might be the instrument that God uses in delivering someone else, that you have been given a commission, that you have the greatest gift of all, the pearl of all pearls, the gospel truth, and that God might use you to give that to a person who needs it, for the sake of all of eternity, 
Um, if you lack that perspective and all you do is just want to get out of here for selfish reasons, something is awry and you will not have peace. Peace comes from orienting to God. Look at verse 9. Therefore, we also have our ambition. What's our ambition? To get the hell out of here? No. To be pleasing, whether at home or absent, whether here on earth or in heaven. To be pleasing to Him. That means obedience. That means to find peace. That thing you pray for, you have to be obedient. It's not, ask anybody that's moved around the country, oh man, I, I'm getting out of here. I'm getting out of here. This is, this is going to change everything. I'm going to take a geographical change because that's going to change my life. No, it's not. No, it's not. You're still going to be a jackass when you move to wherever you're going. Do you understand? You're still going to be defunct. You'll just come up with a whole other set of excuses as to why you're defunct over there. And then you move over here, and you say, oh, well, it's gonna, I'm going to change. Or, so some people, it's not geography, it's people. I'm going to just wipe out all my friends. I'm going to throw my husband out. I'm going to throw, I'm, I'm going to just alienate my, from my whole family even. I don't know. You choose the, whatever it is that people do. That's not going to change anything. Because you're still you. And as far as the Bible is concerned, this stuff depends on you and your decisions and your thinking in your actions, in your lifestyle. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Again, the point the Spirit's making here is that if our cup is filled with a mixture of truth and lies, then we ought to expect that our emotions will be mixed as well. Mixed emotions are the antithesis of peace. Indeed. In fact, mixed emotions may be equated to turbulence. Because, you know, one minute you're thinking in terms of a, a lie, and the next minute you're thinking in terms of truth. One minute you have uh, the world scale of values, the next, the next minute you have God's scale of values. You might, that's another huge one. It happened to me right before class. Someone with a worldly scale of values saying something and establishing something and not realizing that they were doing so on a worldly scale of values. We don't put God on a worldly scale of values. We don't put the things of God on a worldly scale of values and expect to have stability in our lives. Because God never fits that. And this never fits with God. Sanctification means moving away from it. Your scale of values change. Your viewpoint change. Everything changes. So for a lot of you, you need to check your scale of values. Why is it that you lack peace? Maybe your scale of values is torqued. Maybe you lack peace because, I don't know, you don't have something that you think now you don't measure up in the world's eyes. Mixed emotions may be equated to turbulence. Have you ever been 
on an airplane that hits turbulence? I think the last emotion you experience in that time is peace, right? I mean, if you're asleep, you get jolted. You're like, oh, oh. That's not peace. And if you're awake, you're like this. And that's not peace. Turbulence is not peace. Mixed emotion is turbulence. You get the point. This is why we are studying the peaceful fruit of righteousness. As we've learned in the past, righteousness produces stability in our lives. We learn these things so that God can fill our cups with truth, displacing the lies still residing in our souls. You know, the ones that keep us up at night. The ones that keep us from pure living. The ones that rob us of our peace. This work we are tending to, this plowing that our hands have been set to accomplish, well, it's a very good thing. It's a very good thing. As such, one of the key recurring principles has been up here on the board regarding peaceful fruit. Our access to divine peace is not a function of fruit, strictly speaking, but rather a function of being in Christ, in God, in the sphere of peace itself. Peace is a transcendent state of being, of living, of abiding experientially. When we received Christ in us, we were given access to his peace. John 14, 27. And we might think of it this way up here on the board. Peace is the fruit of being righteous. It actually is the fruit of being righteous. Contrarily, as we've noted, there's a thing called earthly righteousness, just a counterfeit. No matter how earnestly it is practiced or even achieved, earthly righteousness has no part in God's peace. We believers receive his peace as a function of bearing fruit of righteousness fruit of righteousness. That means being oriented to God, obeying God's commands, being pleasing to God. Some of you might be perceiving some of this morning's message as a light form of discipline, which is appropriate up here on the board. Hebrews 12:11 in the Amplified says, for the time being, no discipline brings joy but seems sad and painful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, right standing with God, and a lifestyle and attitude that seeks conformity to God's will and purpose. That's when you find peace. When your lifestyle and attitude seeks conformity to God's will and purpose. When your lifestyle and attitude seeks conformity to God's will and purpose. So here's what we've learned. And we're almost done with this series as well, FYI. The peaceful fruit of righteousness from that passage. Peace is a function of righteousness. Righteousness is a function of obedience of faith, both at salvation when it is imputed and experientially when it is imparted. Peace reigns in the heart and soul of God. He says, I'm the owner of peace. I own the sphere of it. 
If you orient to me, you can have some of it. If you're disoriented to me, you lose it. It's yours to take, so said Jesus Christ. My peace I give to you. But if your lifestyle and attitude sucks, sorry, Sunday morning, you know what I'm saying? If it does, well then, there it goes again. And it's like the Bible says, you can pray all you want for something. For as long as you're disobeying, God's going to ignore it. He'll hear your prayer. But you can pray for something all you want. But if his answer is, I hear you, obey. Listen to what the bald guy's saying. Listen to what you read in the Bible. Obey. And you say, nope, because you're obstinate. Guess what he's going to say? Then I scoff you. Don't expect anything from me then. You do it my way. This is my salvation, not yours. You don't get to draw the lines in the sand. You don't get to tell me how you're going to live and make demands to me, the holy God, the immutable God of the universe. I've never changed. You're all over the map. You have mixed emotions because you live in a mixture. You have a cup full of lies and truth, and you're, you're insincere. And you wonder why you don't have peace in your life. I'm telling you why, but you won't listen. Hmm. Peace is a function of righteousness. Righteousness is a function of obedience, of faith. So let's read the same passage we closed with two Sundays ago. It's just such a lovely capstone to this study of the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Go to James 3.13. James 3, verse 13. I hope you see what the Spirit's saying here. I really do. James 3.13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. You see the contradiction there? Disorder versus peaceable. Gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Remember what hypocrisy meant in the Greek? It came from the word that meant to put on a mask. Stop playing the Christian game. God's trying to deliver you. He even is using instruments of righteousness in your life, like the one that's talking to you right now to deliver you, maybe even from your hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So before we close, let's catapult ourselves back up the big picture to the big picture viewpoint. And let's remember our curriculum once again in an effort to understand the key principles the Spirit's been trying to make with us. Think broadly now. Last month, month and a half, two months even, 
Let's start with a passage that echoes of our messages as of late. One comes to mind, the idea of why are the complexity and chaos. Remember those lessons. Go to 1 Peter 5.8. 1 Peter 5.8. Let me ask you a question. And you don't have to raise your hand. Have you ever been drunk? I'm looking down. Not that my opinion matters. When you're drunk, you ever got to the point where you got the spins? I'm looking down. Right? That's very disorienting, isn't it? It's very disorienting. Being intoxicated disorients you. You can't even walk straight. Fair enough? You can't even see straight. And if you look at someone's drunk eyes, they're going like this. They go like this. What does verse 8 of 1 Peter 5 say? Be sober of spirit. And you know what that means? Don't be intoxicated with the world. Be sober. Sober. The opposite of intoxicated. If you keep filling your cup with the world, if you're flirting with the world, oh, you're so, you're so precious. Okay. You might as well be getting drunk. Spiritually. It's, it's no different than the person says, I'm good, I can drive. I've only had a couple. Yeah. I can handle this. Uh, no, you can't. I know this is against God's will, but I can handle it. Um, no, you can't. I'm so good. I've been doing this so long. Have you ever heard a drunk person say this? I, I've heard people say this to my face. I drive better drunk or stoned than I do sober. Uh, no, you don't, because I've been around you. You think you do. But if you saw a videotape of yourself, you'd be like, oh my word, in my head, I was driving great. Yeah. It's no different in the spiritual life. Boy, in my head, I was driving great. Yeah, but you're intoxicated with the world. But I, was, I thought I was driving great because the, I had a peace. I had this peace. Yeah, because the world left you alone. The world loves when you drive spiritually drunk and, and you're running over this person and killing that person and damaging that person's property and then that person's property and you're scarring someone's soul and you're scarring your own soul. Of course the kingdom doctor is going to leave you alone. What do you expect from them? Be sober. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Hello? That was your alert. This, this morning is an alert, a wake-up call. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. How? Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world after you have suffered for a little while, God of all grace, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
And oh, by the way, to Him be dominion, sovereignty, forever and ever. Amen. To Him. One last principle before we close. I'm convinced that most of us skip right over closing remarks like what we have here, up here on the board. To Him be dominion, forever and ever. Amen. Peter reminds us that God is sovereign, and there is no other like Him. Though that is Satan's great desire, quote, I will make myself like the Most High, Isaiah 14, 14. The sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2, 2, share the same objective as their father, the devil, John 8, 44. Whose world is this? Whose world do you live in? Read... Uh, I think it's Hebrews 1.3 or Hebrews 3.1. Jesus Christ controls history. Peter reminds us that God is sovereign. There is no other like him. Though Satan wants to be like the Most High, Satan wants to be God. Just like, seems like, all the sons of disobedience, all the unbelievers out there, you know the ones that you frolic around with, those ones? They want to be their own God. Again, to our previous point, the underlying point or the underlying truth, perversions to grace, mercy, love, repentance, salvation, etc. are symptoms of a much deeper, more insidious issue. That issue is arrogance, which usurps God's sovereign right to be who He is. Let me say that again. All of our lessons as of late this has been the underlying truth. Perversions to grace, mercy, love, repentance, salvation, they're all symptoms of a much deeper, more insidious issue. That issue is arrogance, which usurps God's sovereign right to be who He is. If you claim that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then you know who He is? He's your Lord. He's your Master. He purchased you with His own blood. You've been redeemed. You love that part, don't you? We all do. But He says, I'm the sovereign. And I'm never, ever, ever going to morph to you. I will show you mercy while you fumble around in patience. And I'll even be loving towards you. But don't ever expect me to change my demands or my mandates, or the absolute truths that I've set forth in the Word of God to accommodate you. If and when this kind of arrogance seeps in, we begin losing our perspective. And as we can all attest, once that happens, we, use the, we lose the experiential blessings of abiding in the love of God, and we lose our peace in the process. Fortunately for us, we simply do as we're doing right now. We consume the Word of God, the very bread of life, our sustenance. And as God promises, we are delivered every time. Things like complexity and chaos are nothing more than precisely what we'd expect with the introduction of sin back all the way in the fall 
at the garden. God promised it, actually, when he promised spiritual death. And I'll reflect on one last thing. And just think about this. Uh, It's not a well-formed statement. It's just something to think about. Even physical death is a cause for confusion in this world, which is antithetical to all we've been studying regarding the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Even physical death is confusing. I always wonder how any Christian could not be stoked if the one in the coffin they believe was a believer. But it supposedly, I mean, it happens all the time. People have, are confused about physical death even. Think about how often you've heard a person say, why would God allow this person to be killed or murdered or die from disease, etc.? I think we've all heard such things. But you have to ask, who asks such things? Who asks such questions? Is it the person who understands that God is sovereign and everything happens for a reason? That is the person with faith? The person who may not understand but leaves it up to God? Or is it the person who lacks faith and therefore abides in confusion? The person where life is complex and cannot ever be understood. The person who lacks peace because they are under the power of sin, living a lifestyle of unrighteousness. The answers ought to be abundantly clear at this point. But, as always, we'll see what else the Spirit has to say about this subject next time around when we continue with our curriculum. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for always delivering up meals, hearty meals from the Word of God. Thank you for inspiring spiritual gifts to keep this ministry alive and kicking, Father, to your glory. Thank you for uncompromising truth, Father, and making it available to us always, especially to those who really and truly are seeking such truth. And thank you for disciplining us when required, Father. We're so grateful for it and for the instruments you might use in our lives. We just pray for uh, the deliverance of those in this congregation, Father, and that we continue to grow as a corporate body to glorify you that way as well. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Amen.